doctrine. Last week we, we made it through verse 1, so we're going to kind of pick up there and, and see how far we get this morning. But this is sort of a, a different re- a reminder here. I want to kind of catch you back up. Well, let me read here first. Let's do that. For, you, for yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. For even, but even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. For neither is for neither at any time used we, flatter, uh, used we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. In this section, Paul is beginning to defend his uh, motive in the ministry, and he's reminding them that he didn't come uh, to uh, overwhelm them with his abilities or his knowledge, but he came in the power of the Holy Ghost to preach the gospel of God, uh, to preach not something that Paul had made up, or something that Paul thought was right, but to preach what Christ had said and revealed what ultimately the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation preach. And that is that mankind is sinful and need of a Savior and that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. All must repent and believe the Gospel in order to be saved. And that the Lord God is reconciling and redeeming people unto Himself so that they may know Him, that they might receive His grace, that His glory might be displayed throughout all the world and as this church in Thessalonica was established, Paul and, and his, his uh, fellow workers, uh, Silas and Timothy, were a part of this work. And as they came there, they didn't come there and just were received with open arms, but they experienced some difficulties, and so did the church itself. There were plenty in that day who said, don't believe this Jesus stuff, or maybe don't believe this part of this Jesus stuff, certainly not the resurrection, or maybe not the physical body of Jesus. All these different heresies that were floating around And there became much persecution coming in from the Jewish crowd that did not like this Jesus being preached. Now, as we get into it today, let's look back at verse number one. He says, For yourselves, brethren, know that our entrance unto you, that it was not in vain. He reminded them that that him coming to them was not a vain or an empty thing. It worked out something. What did it work out? Well, it worked out the salvation of souls there in Thessalonica. It established a church. It established a stronghold for the gospel. Remember, just back in in chapter 1, he had spent the whole first 10 verses of this letter saying how thankful he was of of their ministry, how they had been used of God. Uh, Not that they were the ones going all throughout the world, but all the world was passing through Thessalonica uh, to do trading and to uh, purchase and to sell and different things of that nature. And they were hearing the gospel and seeing people with genuine faith live out the gospel in the power of the Holy Ghost, with joy of the Holy Ghost, as he said in 1 Thessalonians 1.6. So it was not a vain thing. And now here he gets into verse 2, and we're going to be seeing Paul's sincerity and dedication to the gospel is shown. Uh, you and I need the same such as the Apostle Paul. Each one of us needs the same sincerity and dedication. Oftentimes, and you hear this, and I've heard this from lost folk who say, well, I don't go to church because of all the hypocrites. Well, first of all, it's a terrible excuse, right? There's hypocrites wherever you want to find them because they'll be there, right? But this is also a reminder for us in the church today that people can see what is real and what is fake for the most part. And we must be sincere in our faith, sincere in our motives, sincere in our attitudes, sincere in the very reason why we're gathered this morning for Sunday school. We must be sincere and dedicated to the gospel. Look at Paul's dedication here. Verse number two, but even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, we were bold 
in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Hold your place here and turn over to uh, Acts 16 for just a moment. Acts 16. Now here's what is happening. As Green writes, the fact that they preached in Thessalonica despite the opposition they faced before and during their ministry there was a strong evidence of their genuine and pure motives. Once more, the appeal is to, the appeal is to what the Thessalonians already knew about their character. As you know, this time reminding them of the missionaries' experience in Philippi. In Acts chapter 16, they come to Philippi. They see some souls saved. They see some great work take place. But then they get locked up in jail. Y'all remember that? Paul and Silas are there. They're singing at midnight. They're praising God. They're, they're preaching. And an earthquake comes. I believe the Lord sends it in response to the, the faithfulness and the prayerfulness and the praise of these men there in, in the jail. And in so doing, it frees them up. And the guard, the uh, Philippian jailer here, he even gets saved. His household gets saved. And there's a, a great change. But we see the suffering that they took place. It says that in uh, Acts chapter 16, verse 20, 22. It says, And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. So they beat them senseless. The idea of laying many stripes, it is not just like a, a beating with a, with a paddle or, or even just fists. This is something that is laying open their back, if you will. It is bringing the, the stripes, much like we see this in reference in Isaiah to Christ's stripes. Uh, this idea of the back and the flesh being opened up by a whip. It does not tell us how many they went through, but certainly it was more than enough. These men would have been beaten, abused. They would have been bloodied. They would have been then thrown into jail to be kept. But nevertheless, what happens? It says that they've gone through, they even get placed in the inner part of the prison and have their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praise unto God, and the prisoners heard them. They kept their testimony. If you do not have real faith, when the time comes for you to get flogged and thrown in jail, you're going to see how ungenuine your, real, your faith is, right? You're not going to suffer for something you really don't believe. One of the great evidences of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the way in which the first century church, and for that matter, even church uh, and Christians today all over the world, are willing to suffer persecution and even death for the truth of the gospel, the power of the gospel, for the preaching of the gospel, for souls to be saved by believing in the gospel. But then look in, ver in chapter 17, right? They leave, they go to Thessalonica, things are going good. In verses 3 and 4, there's some folks who are getting saved from the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. And then it says, though, but in verse 5, but the Jews which believe not moved with envy to, and they begin to come upon them. They even have to leave. And so the believers there in Thessalonica send them out. The next stop for, for Paul and his group is there uh, at Berea. And what we find here with this is that from the very moment that the Thessalonians believed the gospel, there was persecution. From the very time that Paul started preaching the gospel, there was persecution. All throughout the book of Acts, what do we find? Persecution. What do we still find nearly 2,000 years later? Persecution. Why? Because where the gospel is preached, the gospel will be persecuted, but the gospel always triumphs. Uh, the gospel always is the power of God into salvation. It is still always at work to save souls. 
to to bring people to Christ. We also see that with this, Paul's sincerity. And he reminds him of this. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, and this is where we're at. He says, but even after that we had suffered before. So he's saying, remember how we suffered before we came to you? Do you think we would have came to you with wrong motives uh, if we hadn't gone through this? Right? Do you think that we have wrong motives if we had gone through what we'd gone through and still came to you and preached the gospel? Nothing stopped them from going to preach the gospel. The Jews didn't stop them. The persecution didn't stop them. Think about what Paul talks about as he's giving this long list of all these things that he had gone through, all these things that he had been persecuted from uh, and by, all the beatings, the shipwrecks, the the whole thing of which he had gone through. Uh, I'll read it for you here. In 2 Corinthians 11, he hates to even speak of his own self, but the Corinthians needed such at this time. And he says, um, it's sort of to tell them about all of these things that he said, uh, he says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24, Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys, often in perils uh, in, of waters, perils of robbers, perils of mine own countrymen, perils by the heathen, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness and watchings, often in hunger and thirst, fastings, often in cold and nakedness, besides those things that are without that which cometh upon me daily and care for all the churches. You think Paul went through some things? Oh yeah. But what did he do? He kept preaching the gospel. Someone who is insincere in their life or their ministry will not continue to preach in the face of opposition and persecution. I challenge you. To, to read some of Fox's Book of Martyrs or, or Jesus Freaks and see some of these stories, these accounts, really, of people who faced persecution, went through torturing and jailings and abuse, even death, and how the Lord used such sufferings to bring even their jailers to Christ. Remember Acts 16. It, it happened there with the, the Philippian jailer. Even he trusts Christ. Think about this. We need a real sincerity of our faith. What does your life preach to the world around you? What does our life preach? We don't know anything of the sufferings of which Paul faced. Nor do we know anything of the sufferings of which believers in in parts of India or in the uh, Middle East or in China or in parts of Africa are facing today. We know very little of it. We might have some people that get upset at us because we uh, hold our stances on doctrinal issues or we might have someone who says, well, I just disagree, or I think you're a bigot, or a hypocrite, or a this, or a that. These folks are facing life and death. And I'm afraid that one day we're going to face perhaps such in our own nation. And it might come to that. I pray it does not. But if it does, it will show what's real, who's real, and who's, who's not. John chapter 10. Jesus is preaching and He's giving two of His great I Am statements. In the first portion of chapter 10, He says, uh, that he's the door, right? He's the gate of the sheep, if you will. Then he says, I'm the good shepherd. But when we get into John chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, here's what he says about someone. He says, but he that is an hireling and not the shepherd whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth because he is an hireling and careth not for the sheep. Just based upon Jesus' own words, Do you think the Apostle Paul was a hireling? No. 
No, he was someone who referred to himself as a bondservant to the Gospel, a slave to Christ. He was not a hireling. Matter of fact, when persecution came, he preached all the more. You remember there was a time when he got stoned by the people outside of the gate? And what happens the very next morning? He walks back into the city and preaches some more. Sorensen writes, The word translated as contention has the sense of conflict and struggle. Implied is the opposition Paul and the party that he was with him received after arriving at Thessalonica. Nevertheless, they were bold to speak the gospel of God. In spite of trouble, they witnessed anyway. It has been said that uh, a faith not tested is a faith that can't be trusted. Right? Could you, looking on the outside of all that we know about the Apostle Paul, could you trust his faith? Oh yeah, certainly. Why? Because it had been tested. We had read there in 2 Corinthians 11 about all those things he had gone through. And that's probably not even, that's not even all the details. He gives a few details and then beyond that he goes, he's been naked, he's been clothed, he's been in the deep, he's been in the water, he's been in the caves, he's been in the high places. He's been everywhere, right? He's been everywhere, man. <laughs> and he faced persecution all throughout. And what do we see? He pressed on. That's a faith that can be trusted. Our faith has to be tested so we can see that it can be trusted. But when we see persecution beginning to arise, and, and it's beginning to happen more and more, I want you to know that believing the gospel anymore in America is no longer a normal thing. It's not even in the minority anymore. I mean, it is at the minority of minorities to, to believe the gospel and to believe that Christ is the only way of salvation. It is a minority of minorities to believe that God has established male and female and, and has said that abortion is wrong and, and has said that there are certain things biblically that the world is so much for that aren't right. To simply believe the Bible as the Bible is written is a minority of minorities. Right? So what will we do when things heat up a little bit? It will test and try and it will prove many to be false or many to be insincere at best but it will also purify the church and it will also send forth the gospel. Because what we find in the book of Acts, what we find in the life of the Apostle Paul is this. And what we find even in church history throughout 2,000 years of church history, you know what we find? When persecution comes, the gospel flourishes. Do not think that the Lord does not use persecution. Oh, but He certainly does. Struggle and suffering shows what's really happening, what's really there within it. You know, you can tell the health of maybe a root of a tree based on when a storm comes, if it topples over or not, right? You can find out how deep it is. You might be able to see how tall it is and how wide it is or how much stuff is hanging on it, but you find out what it's really made of when the storm comes, much like a house or anything else for that matter. The same is said of our faith. As one commentator puts it, the mission had cost them dearly, but God gave them uncommon boldness to stand up in the synagogue at Thessalonica and preach the same message that had brought them persecution in Philippi. And when opposition broke out in Thessalonica, the missionaries kept on preaching. This is not the reaction of people who are trying to make money or build personal reputations at the expense of their hearers. Paul was not one of these televangelists or health, wealth, and prosperity gospel preachers. He was not looking for a crowd. As a matter of fact, he was looking for people to be born again. He was looking to please God. Our goal, our job, 
is not to please men. It's to please God. I keep above my desk for a reason, a, a quote that essentially is this. It, if you please God, it doesn't matter who you displease. But if you displease God, it doesn't matter who you please. I keep it there as a reminder for myself as I prepare messages and study and pray because I need that. But we all need to understand this, that that day is very much coming in our own day. That we've got to understand that there's coming the day where we've got to say, we will serve the Lord and the Lord only. That, that we cannot bow the knee any longer to others, to Caesar or to whoever. We must solely bow the knee to Christ, regardless of what it will cost. We also see as well in the life of the Apostle Paul in the early persecuted church, in the persecuted church today, that God gives this necessary grace to persevere. There are many of us who would say, I couldn't go through that. I'm a coward. And you might be fairly accurate. I would say the same thing for myself. But yet the Lord gives grace. The Lord gives this strange grace that is even unheard of, unthinkable, to allow someone to go through such suffering and persecution and yet keep on preaching the Word. Now as we come into verse 3, he's going to be defending a few things. He says, For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. What was he exhorting? What was he preaching? Well, the answer is in verse 2. right? The Lord gave them boldness to, to preach the Gospel of God. It was not their message, it was God's message. We can have real boldness when we say, thus saith the Lord. We have no boldness when we say, I think and I feel. Notice that when we come to times where we hear preaching or teaching, or we are, are even discussing, and we get into the I thinks and the I feels, we're a little more, we might take a step back for it, or we might kind of hem and haul and move around. But when we can say, thus saith the Lord, there's a confidence, there's a boldness, there's a power there. Why? Because it is not my message. It is God's message. Therefore, He is the motivating factor. So he says our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. Sadly, much of today's preaching and teaching is done out of deceit, uncleanness, and guile. It is done to backhandedly come through a back door to take the pockets out of those who are less fortunate to promise them health, wealth, and prosperity. You know the people that give the most to false teachers today? Senior saints. People who are on fixed incomes. People who have literally been conned into signing over their wills, their houses, their bank accounts to ministries and to pastors. I wish I was making that up. But the sad reality is that much of what we hear today is done deceitfully, uncleanly, and for guile. We find here in this verse that Paul seems to be defending three different oppositional charges that had come against the character of his ministry. Notice that we don't ever find in the Apostle Paul's writings him begging people for money and funds. We don't find him begging and pleading for uh, certain things in response to, uh, you know, if you give me X and Y, then you'll get Z. No, he doesn't say any of those things. Matter of fact, what does he say? This is who God is. This is who you are. This is who Christ is. This is what Christ has done. Believe the gospel. He preaches the same message over and over and over again, preaching through the scriptures and showing Christ because that's all Paul has to preach. It's all any of us have to preach. It's the only thing that's worth preaching. <coughs> Here's what Sorensen writes. 
says, He reminded them that their exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. As if to strengthen a wavering brethren, Paul recalled the character of their preaching. There was not deceit as of a con man. There were not impure motives. There was no trickery. They were straight as an arrow. Furthermore, as God had allowed them to be put in trust with the gospel, they so continued to speak. Their ministry was not to please men, but God. And I would add to Sorensen here. The reason why it must be that way is because their ministry was not their ministry. Their ministry was God's ministry. The motivation was God Himself. The message was God Himself. It was never coming and saying, I am Paul. Here's what I have to say. It was, I am Paul. This is what God has to say to you. I am a messenger, an ambassador for the gospel of Christ. I am an ambassador, representative for the Lord Himself. I have come not to tell you what I think, feel, or want, or desire, but to give you what God thinks, feels, wants, and desires. That's what we need more of today. Paul recognized that he was who he was. Paul didn't try to come in and try to be someone that he was not. As a matter of fact, whatever it took to win people to the gospel, that's what he he did. He cared so much for souls that his whole life was literally spent to the last of breaths for the gospel of Christ. We also find this. That much like Sorensen writes here, that there was no impure motives, there was no trickery, there was no uh, anything like that. But he was straight as an arrow. God entrusted him with the gospel. What is the gospel? It is the good news of salvation. Is there any greater news than the gospel? No. Is there anything that can be likened to the gospel? No. And if the Lord has entrusted us, his people, with the gospel, that's a high honor. That the Lord would trust us with the greatest message, the most necessary message of all of time and eternity. That Christ came and died, was buried, and rose again the third day according to the Scripture to offer forgiveness of sins and eternal life to all who repent and believe. It doesn't get more important than that. And God had entrusted Paul with such. So who would Paul be to change the Gospel? What would God think? This makes me fearful for all those who preach a false Gospel, but it makes me all the more fearful to want to serve the Lord rightly because God has entrusted us with the gospel. Not just pastors, missionaries, and evangelists, but he's trusted you, everyday believer, with the gospel. Think of that. The next time that you're afraid to tell someone about Jesus, remember this that God entrusted you to do it. God entrusted you with your neighbors, your loved ones, your friends. God entrusted you. His message never changed or faltered. You see, when we just preach the gospel, That's the power of God. When we just preach, thus saith the Lord, that will get the job done every single time. Paul knew this. So he was pure in his motives. Guzik writes, the purity of Paul's message made it apparent that there was no deceit, uncleanness, or guile in his ministry. In the first century world Paul lived in, there were many competing religions, and many ministers of those religions were motivated by greed and gain. Now, I didn't talk about it much this morning, but back in Acts 16, you know what you find right before they get in jail? You know what's happening? There's a young lady who's being abused by some gentlemen who have basically made her a slave. But this young lady is full of the devil, if you will. She's possessed by demons, and she's going around, and she's bringing a great distraction to Paul's preaching and teaching to the ministry. And what Paul does after several days of this is he turns, and he commands the demons to come out, and she's free, literally free from 
the master of those demonic spirits that are possessing and oppressing her, but as well freed now from the masters of which who had enslaved her and used her to do parlor tricks, if you will. They had used her essentially to do what we might call a magic show, a sleight of hand, even the, the extraordinary, to amaze and to wow the people. It was as if that this young lady who was being tormented by these demonic spirits had these, these men who were over her who would essentially be carrying her through the town going, step right up and see as this young lady foretells your future, tells you of all your deeds, speaks to your lost loved ones, all these different things, right? You start talking about some of those extraordinary things, it'll draw a crowd, right? Because it's a circus. It's not the gospel. And what we have done in the modern church age is we have made church a circus. We've made it for entertainment. We've made it for sleight of hand tricks. We've made it to amaze and amuse. But that doesn't change hearts and lives. What changes hearts and lives is preaching Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He came purely. He was not like those men in Acts 16 out for greed and gain. Because what happened there in Acts 16 as they're in Philippi, right before they get to Thessalonica, and what causes their abuse and their persecution is that these men lose their money. And because they lose their money, they lose their minds. Their motivation was money. Their whole life was built around this young lady being tortured and tormented by these demons, and they're making a profit off of her, and now that she's set free, they can't make the profit anymore. Now they've got to go get a real job, right? And so they stir up the crowd. Oh, they're preaching something that's false. They're preaching something that's false. And so the people abuse and persecute Paul and Silas there. Paul didn't come for greed or gain. As a matter of fact, he knew what it meant to abound and to be abased, to be poor, to be needy, to be naked, to be all alone. We need a realness and a genuineness as that. We needed such a motivation that when Christ is our sole purpose for everything, that nothing else that happens to us in this life matters. Right? I, I, I thought of this yesterday as we're, we're cleaning baseboards and all these little things that nobody will even know of. But the Lord does. And it doesn't matter if anyone sees you or knows what you did or didn't do on a church cleanup day or on a church evangelism witnessing day. What matters is that we please the Lord and that He knows our hearts and our motives. And that as well should be our motivation, that Christ knows your heart and motive. You know what Jesus says to every one of the seven churches that he writes to in Revelation chapter 2 and 3? The first portion of each one of those letters? I know thy works. That is a comforting thing because the Lord knows our works. Meaning this, if no one else knows or cares, or even if no one else believes, even if we don't see all these things in our life changing, or if we don't get all the credit or glory, the Lord sees us and knows. That brings comfort. God knows what I do, but it also brings a holy fear because that means He also knows what I don't do and He also knows what I do with wrong motives and attitudes. And so this is why when Paul comes to this, he will have none of this in chapter 2 of people going, oh, well, there's talk of you uh, coming for your own gain, your own greed. What gain and greed? He got ran out of town. He was persecuted. Do you think that's coming in for, for gain and greed? No, not whatsoever. Morris writes here, 
First, the preaching was not from error. The preachers were not wrong. How could the gospel of God be a mistake? Remember, he just told them back in verse 1, it was not in vain. He then says, Secondly, it was not from impure motives, which implies that the preachers had been accused of immorality. This may be general or more probable, uh, probably sexual or religious prostitution was characteristic of many of the cults of the day. And it seems that Paul was being accused of gross sensuality. Let me pause there for a moment. There were plenty of other preachers that were not preaching the gospel. There were plenty of other religions during this time and cults during this time. Uh, Even during this time, there was almost every single temple that you would go to to false gods had temple prostitution and things of this nature, sexual promiscuity and immorality. There was this promoted even as a part of these religions that in order to be pure, you must partake of these actions. Well, Paul didn't preach that. Matter of fact, Paul said, come out from that. And so he couldn't be really truly accused of that. And he's reminding them, we didn't come for that mess. We came and we preached something different. We preached what actually saves souls, what actually changes lives. We don't preach earthly things, but heavenly, eternal things. Thirdly, the preachers were not trying to trick the converts. The word points to cunning craft. It properly signified catching fish with a bait. And thence, it came to mean any crafty design for deceiving or catching. Paul is saying that his preaching did not spring out of delusion or impurity, nor was it conducted in an atmosphere of craft. Notice that when Paul writes many times as well in his letters, he says, I didn't come to you with the biggest words or the most beautiful of words. I came to you to preach Christ crucified. There were countless others who would preach even better than Paul. They could talk better. They could woo a crowd better. They could draw a crowd better. Paul knew how to go to the crowd, preach the crowd, be driven out by the crowd, right? But there were countless of others who could draw in the masses with trickery, deceit, wrong motives. It's not far from what we find today. Where the gospel is preached and the Bible is biblically preached letter by letter, verse by verse, right, chapter upon chapter, book by book, you normally will not find large crowds. But where you find normally large crowds are those where there's the parlor tricks, the circus atmosphere, the amusing and astounding. What we need is the real deal. Paul had the real deal. Silas had the real deal. Timothy had the real deal. Even many at the church at Thessalonica had the real deal. We need the real deal again today. I believe, and as I'm praying for this upcoming revival, is that we would return to that same sort of realness. A genuineness in our faith, a genuineness to please God and not man, a genuineness to know God and to know the things of God, and to live the things of God. May it be our hearts today that we would want to be as genuine as Paul here. That when others may look at our life, they might accuse us of things, but we would be found blameless before God. Let the world say what they want about this church, about the church of God itself, and even about your life. Because I know what the Lord has to say. And that is enough. What God says means far more than what the world, the devil, or the flesh could ever say. 
So today as we bring this to a close, we don't have time to get started in verse 4. But may we make sure that our hearts are clean, blameless, and rightly motivated as the Apostle Paul. Let us pray. Lord, we love you. We come to you this morning. We want to thank you, Lord, for the faithfulness of men like Paul and countless others throughout church history. Help us to live as such. Help us to be faithful to you in all things, Lord. We thank you for this time. We pray that now you prepare our hearts for for this time where we can sing together and fellowship together and to worship you, to praise you, and to hear your word preached. I pray, God, that you would speak to us and give us power in your presence from on high. And God, that you would do and accomplish great things today. We love you and we thank you for this time. We give it to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, y'all, we're taking.